Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. The Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday afternoon, August 30th. The end of the month, almost. Yes, 2020. And um, happy birthday, Sadie. Happy birthday, Sadie. It's the 28th. Don't get the wrong idea. It was August Sadie, 28th. Sadie just had her birthday. That's right. Uh, so, um, you know, she's uh, doing well down there uh, at, uh, in the Washington area. All right, enough enough personal stuff. Okay. Let's move right along. Although I have to say, it's the most beautiful day of the month. Right now in uh, Pennsylvania. Yes. Yes. It's, a, it's, 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 yeah, it's fantastic. It's quite exquisite. Yeah. And uh, even though we went out fairly early on the bikes. There were tons of people. There were a zillion bikes out yeah, there. A zillion. Bikes. A lot of cars, too. I mean, there's a lot of people out. It's like they've been so waiting to get out. Good for them. Yeah. And uh, let's hope people keep getting out. Yes. Well, uh, so we start with uh, your mother's favorite sporting event, believe it or not. I say believe it or not, but you know it better than I do. The Tour de France. Your mother is a huge Tour de France fan, or at least became one after her 90th birthday, if I recall correctly. Well, she says she watches it because she's always hopeful that they will hit a stage where they're in Provence and they're going by fields and fields of lavender. And that's what she lives for. That's really she watches the whole thing, even though she knows it's not all next to lavender fields. Yeah. But uh, well, uh, that's an interesting uh, perspective. I don't think anyone else in the world is watching it for that reason. For most people, it's a highly competitive bicycle race, punishing bicycle race, uh, in which a bunch of riders are riding in close quarters in a so-called peloton over the course of two weeks. Um, and of course, nothing's the same in this pandemic year. So the race was postponed, but it was never... Th- Maybe they're taking extra drugs. No, well, no. Because the bicycle riders always take drugs anyway, right? <laughs> that's true. So now they're just... But that's not the official taking line. Taking more. It's not the official line. Uh, they, they're really still having this? Here's why they're having it. They, they never thought for a minute. They never considered, this according to the, the Wall Street Journal, the tour never considered canceling the race. What they did was they delayed it for a few weeks, and it's starting now, uh, because they set up a bubble system which each team is sort of creating its own bubble. There are eight riders and 22 staffers with each team. They only deal with each, with each other. They don't deal with outsiders. There are all these protocols that keep them in so-called bubbles. But the reason that the tour never doubted they were going to proceed is that they've been germaphobes for years. And this I didn't know. But Tour de France cyclists, according to the journal, have been fretting about hand washing and microbes for years and years. They had to protect their immune systems from a grueling three-week bike race. They had long ago done away with anything touchy-feely, no uh, no handshakes. Uh, it's always been highly cognizant of the threat of germs because, as they say in the article, the easiest way to spread germs is between two bicycle riders. They're always in close proximity. They're breathing hard on each other. And you have... Uh, uh, compromised immune systems. These these cyclists are pushing themselves so hard that they're extremely vulnerable to any germ or any virus. Forget COVID really? for the moment. And really? They, and the rest of the athletes in the world are not? Not like this. They came up with a, an approach based on minimizing the potential for the communication of germs in 2008. 2008. The dark uh, ages. Well, well, let me tell you how, how extensive this was. It wasn't just a matter of 
don't shake hands. That meant starting in 2008, they've been buying hand sanitizer in industrial quantities. Uh, they also uh, travel the tour, each team, with their own mattresses, their own hypoallergenic sheets. Uh, they send their advanced, advanced squads to each of the hotels to vacuum the rooms, to disinfect TV remotes, and to scrub the shower taps since 2008. They've been totally onto it. They're an example for the rest of us. So the idea of Sounds doing, like Sadie should be a Tour de France. Sounds like Sadie's been there. Uh, but uh, Perhaps a consultant. But these people are, you know, the, the, the bicycle riders and their teams are more prepared to deal with the pandemic than any other sports known to man. And uh, therefore, you have to be optimistic that they're going to be able to run through this three-week race, even though they had to postpone it a little bit. So your mom should be okay. Whether they're going through Provence, I can't say. Whether there's going to be any lavender, I don't know. You know what there's not going to be? There's not going to be any crowds. There's not, you know, you always see in the Tour de France people standing on the route, uh, too close to my mind, to be safe, uh, and patting the riders on the back, even while they're moving. Yeah, I find all that pretty sketchy. That's then. That's not going to happen. The good news is that's out. So you're going to have. How do they presence. keep that from happening? Well, they're going to have a hard time. It's a long race. They're going to have a hard time. They make announcements. They'll do the best they can, um, but they're going to try to minimize having any kind of fans there on the way. But your mom will be uh, safe in her own space, uh, watching TV, looking for lavender, and uh, lapping up. This is the the U.S. Open is starting too. The U.S. Open is starting, but they don't have the experience with the uh, germs that the Tour de France does. So who knows how that's going to work out. But the U.S. Open is going forward, the tennis tournament, of course, without crowds. Without crowds. Without crowds. And okay. uh, we'll see if there's any interest in that. Um, All right. Uh, actually, uh, back in the U.K., yeah, they're trying to generate some crowds, to a certain extent, going back to the restaurants. They're trying to revive the restaurant industry. Yeah, they're reversing course. They're t- after telling people. And how are they doing that? Yeah. The government is picking up half the check. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, okay, not for alcoholic beverages, yeah. but for the food and alcoholic beverages, they, the government will pay half your bill as trying to create an incentive for people to go back to restaurants. And it's working, right? It is working. I mean, you don't know if it'll have a lasting effect, but it is working. Um, I don't know. Uh, they said um, in the first three weeks, this program uh, sold something like uh, 64 million meals. Okay. That's in three weeks. There yeah. are only 67 million people in Great Britain. Okay. Wow. So that's a lot of meals. Yeah, that is a lot right. of meals. Um, but, uh, you know, it's right now the tab is coming to like 441 million buckos. But that's com- a bargain compared to the other measures that the government had identified right. to spur right. the economy. So if this kind of right. thing works, it's yeah. a tremendous gain. I mean, they have in the article, they mentioned these behavioral economists that they say in the UK, they've been consulting every step of the way. And I had a hard time really understanding what the behavioral economists were saying were the real triggers here. Did you catch that in the article or not? No, no. I mean, they, they talked a lot about uh, you have to um, overcome, you know, you have to create a new habit. You know, now right. we've created the habit of not right. going out. Yeah. We have to recreate a new habit of going out. Right, that's the first thing. That's the first um, phenomenon. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the problems that uh, the restaurants feel they're facing is the winter 
Yeah. Okay. And people being, even if they get around to, okay, eating outdoors is fine. Eating indoors is not so fine. So there's that hurdle. So, I mean, the the jury is still out. the The other thing the economists are counting on is that if you get people out to restaurants, then that will get the, your foot in the door psychologically to them going back to their offices, going back to gyms, going back to the theaters, and so on. So it, it, it's worth it, even uh, even if it's temporary, and even if it costs some money to uh, the government, to, to the political body, it's worth it to get people out. And the theory is once you get people out, they're going to go to other places also. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. And the same problem in New York. The, uh, the tourists are not there. Yeah. And uh, the office workers are not there to use right. any of these. But you got to start with the people who are there, and the people who are there are shuttered, yeah. and they're in their apartments. So you feel like, well, if you get people in the habit of going out two or three times a week to a restaurant, maybe you know they'll see a shop by the way, they'll see a store by the way, they'll be open-minded with respect to going back to their offices when the time comes to going yeah. back to their offices. It's just they're counting it's on so lot. counterintuitive though because we we have been so slammed with uh, don't go anywhere, right? And I'm yeah. sure they were, that was so, in the UK. So after pleading people not to do anything, not to get together, not to socialize. They're they paying said, them to They're paying socialize. them to socialize. Okay. All right. Well, they didn't say they should socialize. They should just eat. Yes. 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 But okay. that's pretty darn close. I mean, and you look at the photograph in the article, they look like they're socializing. All right. So um, speaking of uh, getting things going again, the Metropolitan Museum of Art yeah. has reopened. Okay. Yeah, I think we've been hearing about that, that it was going to happen. Did it officially happen yeah. like a few days ago or something? Yeah, yeah. Okay. so members have been going, and right. now um, everyday people can... You have to make a reservation. Wow, Right. just to go to the museum. Yeah, and I couldn't quite understand the whole system. Uh, I went online to look at it, and um, they must not be taking reservations very far in advance. Because for like the next two weeks, you could sign up mm-hmm. and then there's nothing available for months. So that must mean they're just not um, taking it. They're not just, taking it's it, just those reservations. Yeah, yet. it's just got to uh, be. You can't do it in advance. Because I know that uh, MoMA is only doing them a couple weeks at a time. But we'll mm-hmm. talk about that more in a minute. So, uh, you know, uh, once again, the Med is having its big 150-year-old uh Museum celebration. Well, and that was planned for for some years, right? That, that's, that, that's, oh, it's been planned for forever. It was yeah. supposed to open in April and right. kaboom. Right. And uh, now uh, you can go see it. And it traces the development of their collection, mm-hmm. which now is controversial. Right. Okay. Because it's European oriented or something? It's Eurocentricity. Right. Okay. Right. And, uh, you know, and how do we explain, you know, let, Follow the path of the collecting to understand how our taste, how hard lives have changed. But how how is the Met going to make that turn to not just globalism, but universalism? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is the question. And the, males, the Met is kind of but flailing is it, about what's trying to... What's globalism versus universalism? I don't even know. Okay. I, you know... Uh, Globalism, you know, it sounds intergalactic to go from globalism to universalism. Well, there's also a real universalism. Okay. okay. You're nodding. So, like I... Well, you know what? I think this is a lot of bull feathers. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, people are flailing about trying to give some meaning, trying to kind of rewrite uh, their 
history, their mission to fulfill today's needs mm-hmm. um, without destroying anything. Right. Uh, they don't want to destroy their past. Uh, but, you know, I mean, there is something to uh, tracing our societies by tracing these collections, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, what people collect, what they admire, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, that turn from just European to, you know, Indian, African, you know, more global taste that happens, you know, pretty early on. And who is drawn to those kind of things and why are they drawn to them? So I think it's a, a um, it's an easy topic to get interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, everybody's quite nervous about saying yeah, the pretty, right thing. Meanwhile, fun. if you go to the Met, a yeah. uh, couple of good things to see there. One of them is uh, on the rooftop. There's a um, wall built by Hector Samora. Oh, yeah, I read about this. And it's pre- it looks pretty fantastic. Yeah. And uh, it is because it's made of these hollow bricks that are set on their side. So you can actually look through the wall. You get this kind of pixelated city view uh, that is kind of fantastic. But you have to go to the roof to take advantage of this. You can't. You yeah, can't. they have the they have the rooftop, rooftop exhibition space. They've had all kinds of but stuff. But what happened? But if you're just walking along the street and you look up at the roof, are you seeing anything that's? that's I don't remarkable? even know if you can see it. Oh, I have really? never okay. tried because you know, it's kind of on the back there. All right. Yeah, I don't think you see it from the from the street. The what you want to have is the experience uh, being in it, and um, so you know it's kind of a commentary on. Uh, you know, accessing things and ex- being excluded from things, that wall, that kind of see-through wall. Okay. Well, that's, I get it. I also know that the Met needs the money, so they're eager to get people in and uh, to charge admission, right? Get in there, buy those uh, Metropolitan Museum masks. By the way, they are going to take your temperature, just like uh, when you're going to places to the doctor's office or whatever yeah, today. Right. You're going to take your temperature. They're going to have you have to wear a mask. Cannot check your coat. Cannot carry a big bag. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm not a big coat checker. Uh, the temperature stuff I think is for show, but that's fine. They want to do that. Good for them. Uh, Okay, and I'm I'm sure they're not going full capacity. I'm sure they're doing just uh, percentage. Of right, capacity. that's why everything is uh, reserved. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Well, the other way to do that would be just to increase your your fee, but I guess that's not what they want to do. Uh, all right. So there was an order. No, as a matter of fact, yeah. they're still they are hearing if you are if you qualify being a New York resident, yeah. you don't student, etc. You pay what you will, okay. pay what you want. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Um, yeah, but they could increase the other fee if they wanted to. The non-New York residents. Why are you all about increasing fees? They need the money. They need the money. When Usually when you're in a situation where you have... Right, limited... Let's just not even get into the discussion of they need the money. Okay. Okay. But I will just tell you, from an economic perspective, when you have limited capacity... And you're looking to increase your revenue, you raise fees. That's that's inevitably. That's not the only consideration. Okay. We don't have time for this. Moving right along. All right. Uh, Yeah. So here's an article in the Times. The title kind of gives it away. The secret of their success, backyard workouts and lots of sleep. So obviously the pandemic changed everyone's schedule, including uh, world-class athletes, in particular track and field athletes, who were the focus of this article. And instead of being able to compete in things like the Olympics or other competitions this year, they've been left to stay at home and uh, 
to the extent that uh, they're motivated, and they're a pretty motivated group, uh, train on their own or train with the, with the help of a trainer, even though there's no particular meat, uh, huge meat in sight. Uh, and perhaps not surprisingly, that's worked out well for some people. And the Times point is, and they give profiles of several examples of this, is that by changing the, the workout regimen of uh, swimmers and runners and shot putters and discus throwers and the folks of that sort, uh, many actually have improved their performance. And the key to that is increased sleep. The one thing that even uh, the most serious athletes uh, tend to neglect, according to the Times, or sometimes neglect, is getting enough sleep. And then, well, I think everybody neglects that. Well, in here... And I think in the, you know, in the real world, we're always getting, you know, there's a new book published every week about how we need more sleep. And here's all the benefits of sleep. So why haven't the athletes been listening? Well, some have, apparently. But these examples, they have this guy, Ryan Krauser, who's Olympic shot put champion in 2016. Uh, they say, well, he's got an increased rest, less exhaustive travel, and that's made all the difference. And now he's, throw, he's putting the shot farther than he's ever put the shot. They have a swimmer named Claire Curzon, who's uh, 16 years old, and Olympic swimming hopeful. The same thing. She's increased her sleep to nine hours from six or seven, and she's getting record times for herself. She's, you feel yeah, but so where does this better. lead us? It just shows, Is anybody going to keep sleeping once? Uh, yes. Are they going to stop having yes. these competitions? They're going to change. These people are serious. I mean, anything that, yeah, these that re- people are serious. Anything that results in... in, in they're going to hold the competitions. People are going to want to compete. I and understand. they're just going to forget. But they're going to change their training yeah. regimens. You're going to see so you a know greater... what they're going to do? They're going to say, oh, oops, I can't study for school anymore because I have to get sleep. Well, maybe they will. I have to go compete. Maybe they right? will. Look, I, I'm not going to. I don't know their individual situations. Many of these people are. Look, older, it's a wonderful no finding, Daniel. I'm glad you right? found this out. Yes. The, what are the implications? That's the impl- what I'm, I want to know. I'll, let me finish. I'll tell you what the implications are. The implications are when these folks devise their training regimens, uh, they're going to change their training regimens to allow for more sleep and, and how, less And workout. we know this how because people don't ignore results. If you see the results there, they're going to follow the results. The, the, yeah. This, one yeah. guy is a Ugandan runner. He's talking about all the rest he got because he didn't have to travel to competitions. He's just set the world record for 5,000 meters. All right, you have persuaded me. But when push comes to shove, they're going to say, oh, yeah, well, that was then. This is now. And they're going to go back to their old evil ways. 5,000 meters average a four minute and three second mile I'm for each you. mile of the 5,000 meters. People have short memories. These are unheard of times, Tamsin. Mm-hmm. It's a medical breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, so... As, as I said, um, MoMA. MoMA is opening. Yes. And um, I have to get my article back out here. Uh, MoMA, you know, you can go to uh, MoMA for free. Guess who's paying? Uniqlo. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, They're pretty nearby. Up until September 10th. Uniqlo is two blocks away. Yeah. What? They're, too, they're, they're all over the place. Yes, Jesus. but there's a big store yeah. on 45th Street, and on 54th Street in 5th. Is a block or two away from MoMA. Yeah, that's the reason. That's um, it. Yeah. But uh, but uh, sadly, it's sold out. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you have you have to go online to get reservations. Yeah, and uh, there's no available. Um, there's no times available okay. during so, that period. So MoMA and, and the new tickets don't go on sale till like September fourth for so, the next batch. So when are they actually open? Have they opened this week or something? I think they are open. Yeah. Okay. 
But you again, and, you have to reserve. And is there any, you know, all that excitement. Any special reason to go to MoMA, or it's, it's, it doesn't have the same kind of gala uh, celebration that the Met has? I assume there's always a reason to go to the MoMA. But one thing you might want to see is an exhibition on Félix Fénénon, the anarchist and the avant-garde from Signac to Matisse and beyond. Okay, so this is a, a show basically about the suave and brilliant Félix Fénénon, the, an ideal subject for a show of this kind. He was a confirmed dandy. He worked as a critic, editor, translator, curator, journalist, publisher, gallerist, private dealer, and prescient collector, not only of the French avant-garde, okay, but also of non-Western art, especially African sculpture, whose aesthetic value he was early to recognize. He lived from about 1861 to 1944, okay, and his big discovery was your buddy, George Seurat, okay, and uh, it's, uh, you know, he writes about him, promotes him, etc. becomes uh, a big fan. You may have seen, I'm holding up a uh, um, picture of him by Paul Signac. Have you ever seen that before? No. It's, it's him uh, uh, with the uh, kind of uh, a kaleidoscope, a pinwheel uh, behind him. He was fascinated with, interested in sort of the scientific uh, ideas that Surat and Signac and others were embracing and uh, used and, you know, evoked uh, some of these uh, um, theories through those uh, pixelated little dots mm-hmm. that we see mm-hmm. in their painting. This idea that it wasn't, you know, he found uh, something unsatisfying about the sort of... Um, spontaneity and uh, slapdashery of the Impressionists, Mm -hmm. and that this was more, you know, deliberate, uh, monumental, uh, because it was more scientific. Uh, So, you know, part of that idea of, you know, really embracing, uh, you know, science, etc., even in arts during the 19th, uh, moving into the 20th century. Um, So, uh, that would be fun to see. It's an exhibition of, you know, all manner of uh, artwork related to his interests and kind of reflecting the interests of the time. Um, all right. Well, you know, it's funny. You mentioned Matisse. That, well, that, of course, calls to mind that movie we saw a week or two ago, the Orson Welles movie, F is for Fate. Yeah in which uh, they featured, they talk a lot about people who forge art. They, they focused on one guy in, the, in particular, but uh, the, the, they were suggesting, although it is called Death is for Fake, and the movie said a, a lot of things that possibly were exaggerated, if not clearly untrue, and that was part of the gamesmanship of the film. But they suggested that there are, movie, there are paintings of Matisse, of Mondrian, of a few others hanging in big museums all over the world, there are actually forgeries. Mm-hmm. Did that sound to you as likely, possible? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Let me go back to my guy, though. Yeah, that was an interesting little aside there. Thank although you. that was one of the most boring movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Orson I- Welles' F is for fake. If you're trying to get rested up for some shot pudding, <laughs> try that. 
movie. Okay. okay? But you get and my point. Let yes. me just say, one of the things, one of the things that's interesting during this time period for critics and writers like Fenelon yeah. is there was no big delineation between what is an art critic and what is, uh, you know, an writing right, about art, right. writing about literature. Right. And he, you know, um, goes back and forth. Towards the end of his career, he has a column called News in Three Lines, okay? And these are capsule accounts of scandals, murders, accidents, crimes of passion. And he sums it up in all just a couple of lines. So let me give you an example of one of the ones he wrote, okay? Yeah. Uh, here it is. Finding his daughter... Insufficiently austere, Jalat, watchmaker of Saint-Étienne, killed her. It is true, he had 11 children left. That's his column. That's his column. (laughs) That's his column. Um, And uh, Roberta Smith, in this article, describes this as being a living ancestor to the Cubist collage, the surrealist, exquisite corpse drawings, and all manner of 20th century Poetry. In them, Fenenant the aesthete, Fenenant the anarchist, and the non artist becomes an artist of lasting achievement. Okay. But, but I thought that I thought that was very true, actually. The, the funny little putting together of these words is uh, very evocative of the styles of painting that we're seeing with the cubism and surrealism during okay. some of these decades. All right. All right. Um, movies. What's happening to the movie industry, Thames? I know you're concerned about that. Well, believe it or not, they're beginning to reopen. Maybe beginning to is the key phrase. So they're starting I can't even believe that. It's so, true. It's, so, uh, so there's a movie are, with... Uh, so are the governments paying people no, to go to the no, no. Mu- so, movies? So there's a movie called Unhinged with Russell Crowe, which didn't do big box office, but it's reasonable enough box office that they were encouraged by it. Uh, they just uh, it, they just released another movie, which is called New Mutants. And New Mutants, which is an Avengers movie, uh, didn't do that well. But according to Granger and even the paper here, uh, the buzz on that movie that is was that it's terrible. It has been its release had been delayed almost a year because it considered a dog of a movie. So I don't know what to make of that. But what's coming up? The personal history of David Copperfield, which got a very good review in the Times. Uh, is being released now in theaters. People are interested. Theaters in only. Yes, theaters How are we only. Going to see it because we got to go to the movies. And and on top of that, people are looking forward in a couple of weeks to the movie Tenet, T E N E T, Tenet, which is the Chris Nolan film, which has been you know widely anticipated. Uh, Chris Nolan's films are very popular, including the Batman movies. Uh, Two hundred million dollar budget. It's a lot of money invested in it, and that's considered a test case. Um, they say uh, in this article in the Times that uh, this is, will tell them if mega movies are going to work. Uh, people have to leave their house and buy tickets to the theater. Put another way, if people don't return to the theaters to see Tenet, it may change what is available to watch. Studios may have to start making less expensive films because they're not going to be able to recoup the money at the theaters. And they're trying to decide whether that's Going to be doable or not? I know. So you can only make the big money in the theaters. You can't make it by streaming. You, you can't make stuff. the same. Okay. You can't do the same. Now, the two hundred dollars movie is going to be a thing of the past. That, you know, Mulan's being uh, released. You know, the other way, it's going to be streaming, but they're not going to make the kind of money you would make if you could introduce it in, in in theaters because you get a double dip that way. You get it in theaters first, 
and then you get to do it streaming. So you, if you skip the in-theaters part, you're losing something. And what happened with respect to the Chris Nolan movie, Tenet, is that, uh, you know, the movie maker said, look, we'll go straight streaming. We can't do it. And he insisted. He has that much power in Hollywood. No, no, no. You're not doing anything with that movie unless you release it first exclusively in theaters. Well, we'll have to see if it works. The article in the Times is how are people, what's their attitude? And, you know, the theaters that they're talking about here are doing social distancing. They ask people to wear masks. They clean the theaters. And this happens to be in Nevada. It could be anywhere. And obviously, different states have different rules about what's open. And what you get from the article is what you expect in the Times. The most nervous person in theater is the Times reporter. Everyone else seems comfortable with the situation, but they do report at the end of it that New Mutant was a terrible film. So you don't learn well, too much. Well, but there and people were already not going to the theater, so. But there, there's what... not going, and there's really not going. Okay. Right. So uh, this we'll see. We'll see if Tenet makes money, or if Tenet, if Tenet is the same kind of antidote that the Brits hope that the 50% payment is if it draws people out of their homes because they're just dying to see this entertainment. That's the idea. So, apparently not everybody is reading the newspaper. Yeah. Because Wednesday morning in the Netherlands, okay, another Dutch painting was stolen. Okay. okay, a reasonably famous Dutch painting, a painting that is so popular, it's been stolen twice before. Okay, <laughs> it's a painting by Franz Hals, and it's called Two Laughing Boys. Yeah, not my favorite painting. I mean, we love everything about Franz Hals. He really captures uh, the animation of uh, face in a wonderful way. Um, and this one is with a crazy big fur hat. Maybe that's fun. I don't know. But we went through this, okay? The Times, did. remember the I, I did the whole report on the Times article yeah. where they interview a, an art thief? And he explains what limited things you can do with a painting well, and how a famous painting is pretty worthless. You can't fence it. Because as it turns out, nobody really wants but the they, famous painting. But they explain painting. in the article what you do with it. Did you catch that? Yes. Yeah. You you use it as uh, leverage right. for other crimes. Right. In other okay. words, so if you're a big time mobster, you steal one of these paintings, you keep it in your back pocket... And the time comes when you're uh, arrested and you want to cut a plea deal. You say, you know something? Here's something else I can offer up in the plea negotiations. I think I know where that painting is. I don't think this is the best choice no? myself for that. Um, <laughs> you know, but uh, I do like that um, the, uh, the guy on the case of it is, um, it doesn't seem like a very elaborate heist, said Arthur Brand a Dutch private art crimes detective. Let's pause on that for a minute. How's that for a business? He's a private art crimes detective. Yeah. I wouldn't mind getting in on that. Although these these characters sound a little dangerous. Okay. Um, But uh, anyway, um, um, he's going after it and he says, they now have me after them. I'm going to search until I find oh, it. Okay, you know, so watch like, out for Arthur that Brand. That sounds like masterpiece theater, honestly. That's that's well, you know, this guy's the right guy for Sunday night. I think I think he's probably not going to have much of a problem because, uh, as I said, these guys are dopes. They're not <laughs> reading the articles. They're not up on the business. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, so we'll, uh, we'll see. They, look, they've they've been successful in recovering that painting before. So there's uh, go get him, Art. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. So here's something that's just really weird. Um, fairy crew plucks three-year-old clinging to unicorn from unicorn float from sea in Greece. In Athens, a young girl, three years old, is out with her family at the, on the beach. She's riding a uh, unicorn, an inflatable toy, a unicorn, in which she's sitting there with her arms on the uh, unicorn's neck. And apparently stiff breezes come along, and she drifts away from her family. I mean, it's no joke. It's kind of a dangerous situation. Uh, they try to rescue her by grabbing a nearby dinghy. They can't row out there fast enough because of the strong current. And there is uh, a photo of her by a huge ferry, a 330-foot-long ferry out at sea. Well, she gets rescued by them. They manage to Who radio. rescues her. They, yeah, they, they radio they, the ferry, yeah. and they rescue her. But... You know, here's what's of particular interest to me, and of course uh, Dixon knows this because he bought it. Uh, we have one of those unicorns here. We've seen that unicorn. The inflatable before. unicorn. Inflatable float. unicorn. Yes. Matter of fact, when I first saw it, I thought that was our inflatable unicorn. I felt like looking out in the back room to see if somehow it had gotten to Athens. And those things are not too sturdy. I mean, the idea. Sturdy enough. Are they really? They look pretty thin to me. I mean, but she didn't slip off. She survived. I. This is one of the... It's an amazing unicorn. I mean, that it went out there and see. I'm looking at this Kind of thing. a unicorn situation. I wouldn't go in the deep end of the pool with the unicorn that we have. And, and now then, you know you can't. And now she's out there and she's riding this thing. The sad thing is they, they saved the girl. It doesn't sound like they saved the unicorn. I mean, I, I think the unicorn was allowed to drift off. They just reached for the girl. Uh... But any event, it was a. It was, you well, know, I know where she can get one. It was a proud Pretty day cheap. for inflatable unicorns, and it's stunning to see a picture of one of your inflatable beach toys next to a 330 foot trawler. So, anyway, an unusual story, but a, a happy end. Okay, so um, back, uh, back to the arts. Back to the arts. As if you haven't had enough. Um, so, you know, part of what the Times doing is recycling old information, and uh, actually. Uh, this was a pretty nice article uh, about uh, Jacob Lawrence, uh, the uh, African-American uh, artist, uh, and uh, Michael Kimmelman, who used to be the head art critic of the New York Times, sure, I remember that. Okay, did an interview mm-hmm. with uh, Lawrence in 1996 and talked to him. Did, did, actually, they walked around the Met and MoMA and uh, looked at uh, some of the um, artworks. 25 years ago. 25 years ago. Uh, Lawrence passed away in uh, two thousand in the year 2000, mm-hmm. um, so it was not too long after that. He was a little bit frail. He was in a wheelchair part of the time, but he had some interesting things to say. He is uh, perhaps most famous for a um, series uh, called The Migration, uh, the kind of the story of the uh, um, southern uh, blacks coming to the north mm-hmm. uh, and um, to find, uh, you know, um, work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, that is a series that he does that when he's, uh, he sells it when he's 24 years old mm-hmm. in 1941. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge success. He is interesting because he's somewhere between, um, you know, he's, let me see, how how do they, uh, uh, how does uh, Kimmelman phrase it here? 
Um, during the 40s and 50s, when battle lines in the art world were drawn between abstractionists and social realists, he pursued a middle path. Maybe I was not, maybe I was fortunate not to have thought in intellectual or ideological terms, he told me. That's Kimmelman talking. Uh, I never became, it's Kimmelton, Kimmelman, sorry, uh, quoting Lawrence. Um, I never became consumed by any particular artistic circle. That's my temperament. Um, So, Uh, This is celebrating an exhibition at the Met of another series that he did called The American Struggle. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, it it was, uh, you can see that uh, it's um, interesting. It's, you know, somewhat abstract, abstracted, stylized. He was influenced by a lot of uh, different um, uh, artists including the great uh, muralists. He was appreciative of Rivera, but uh, most uh, impressed by Orozco and uh, the sort of energy and um, kind of, um, I don't know, um, power expressed in uh, his uh, famous uh, frescoes. So, I think this would be a fun uh, exhibition to see. The article itself, uh, you know, has uh, Lawrence tracing through, remarking on uh, Renaissance, uh, Italian Renaissance paintings uh, that uh, he was impressed by, uh, talking about uh, paintings by Pollock that he was not so mm-hmm. impressed by. Um, and uh, it, um, uh, anyway. I don't know what else I want to say about uh, this, but uh, beautiful, fascinating stuff that I think is uh, very uh, accessible. Uh, I do have one uh, quote from him that I like. This is from Lawrence. Uh, from Jacob Lawrence uh, from 1992, uh, relating to some extent to uh, the subject matter of the American Struggle series, which traces American history. And he said, we have become the country we are because of conflict. And I always say that conflict can be very beautiful in what comes out of it. Okay. So I'd I'd like to see that. I'm not so excited about going to the Met at the moment, but I might just go so I can see. So that exhibition is at the Met now? Yes. Okay. Uh, All right. So finally... uh... A woman named Angela Buxton uh, passed away, who I had never heard of. Uh, she was uh, a tennis player uh, who was uh, prominent in the 50s. Um, and it's a very interesting story. Um, she had uh, uh, come from uh, uh, Europe and then, uh, well, she was born in Europe, uh, uh, left London uh, during the uh, war uh, then was in South Africa, and she, uh, her mother put her together with a coach. She became an uh, extremely successful tennis player, got to the United States, and started having great success at a young age. Uh, the problem was that she ran into discrimination uh, because she was Jewish, which I, I, surprised me, okay? I wouldn't have thought that uh, post-World War II, a young woman uh, who uh, tennis player would have been uh, would have confronted with so many difficulties because she was Jewish, but she did. I'm not surprised. Okay. 
I mean, I think of tennis as sort of a country club sport. Right. You know, and I, I'm not surprised that uh, people, you know, would uh, confront a, a sort of social um, well, discrimination. She clearly did. I mean, it's it's an interesting story in that uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, she was denied access to training facilities and the training facilities she ended up using were owned by Simon Marks. Simon Marks... Uh, was the owner of the Marks and Spencer department store in London. You remember that. We went to that years ago. That was the big department store. Right. And we bought some interesting items. So anyway, he he, he allows her to... Uh, to use his private court. And yeah. he's... Because he's, he's Jewish. Yeah. And uh, later on, uh, when she's in, in the U.S. and she's in California... She's still confronting all kinds of discrimination. Right. She can't practice at the Los Angeles Tennis Club because she's Jewish. But uh, instead, she goes to public courts where her instructor became Bill Tilden, who was, until a few years ago, was considered the greatest tennis player of all time. Um, and uh, apparently, so she became sort of a cause celeb. Hollywood stars would come watch her practice, according to this article. Um, and then she got uh, on the tour and uh, did quite well. Um, but here's the most interesting part about this story. Is that uh, they Wait a minute, before you go there? Yeah. Then doesn't she end up practicing uh, uh, at somebody's, um, some famous uh, person's backyard and Charlie Catherine, Chaplin's tennis Charlie court. Charlie Chaplin's yeah, Charlie tennis, Chaplin's gets, tennis court. Because Tilden has all kinds of connections, right? So he, he uh, she ends up uh, being able to use Charlie Chaplin's, right. and, and as I said, there, there and are people Hollywood are hanging people around there, like Catherine Hepburn and Walter Pigeon. Are acting as ball boys, well, right? right. I, 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 I mean, really, she just has this very. I didn't go into that because I don't. I believe, know, but it's just an interesting. I don't believe it. You don't believe saying. it? No. I don't know. It's kind of a funny. Well, story. I, I believe the Charlie Chaplin part. I don't believe that uh, Catherine Hepburn was picking up balls, let alone Walter Pigeon. Um, but fine. Uh, but in any event, okay. so anyway, so she, she gets on door and she has success, and her coach decides that she could be a very successful doubles player, in particular if she had the right partner. And they choose as her partner a woman on the tour who's an outcast like Angela Buxton and with whom Angela Buxton has become friends. And that is the great Althea Gibson. Right. And Al Gibson, Althea Gibson is famous. She was a great African-American tennis player, the first great African-American uh, female champion or really champion of any sort in tennis. Uh, and her big, they had a great doubles partnership. Uh, they won uh, two major tournaments, doubles, including Wimbledon. Uh, and actually, uh, they became tremendous friends, right? Uh, because they were excluded by everybody to the extent else. Extent when Althea Gibson. Well, well, let me before we get to that. Yeah. Okay. But uh, the funny story here is that at one point in Wimbledon, uh, Ansel Buxton is going to play in the finals with Althea Gibson the next day, and she's also going to play in the finals to win the singles tournament at Wimbledon. And she goes to go to the there's a Wimbledon dance for Wimbledon ball the night before these events. Uh, with her mother to pick up tickets, and they deny her tickets, deny her tickets. And her mother, who apparently was a strong personality, said, that's great. You deny her tickets. Guess who's not showing up to either of those events tomorrow? Let's see how you'll do with no doubles tournament and no singles tournament. And a few minutes later, someone finds some tickets, and they go to the ball. So it's it's crazy. Uh, uh, so in any event... Um, but to pick up on your point, she does become friends with Gibson. Gibson uh, has Buxton retires at the age of twenty-two because of a bad wrist. Gibson goes on to become an even greater champion, uh, very well known. But she had when she in her does life. when she does yeah. win 
the first Wimbledon. Yeah. And there's the winner's ball. Yeah. Buxton makes her dress. Oh, that's right. That's right. Buxton makes her dress. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, but years later, Althea Gibson uh, uh, falls on hard times. Uh, according to this uh, this uh, article, uh, she calls uh, Angie, as she calls her. To say goodbye. To say goodbye because she's going to commit suicide. And uh, Angela Buxton says, well, no, just wait just a minute. And uh, talks her out of it and, and raises money for her uh, through the U.S. Tennis Association. And uh, kind of brings her back to life. And brings her back to going. Yeah. And uh, she uh, prospers for some time. So in any event... Um, it's uh, it's story kind of, of an a amazing... great, great friendship. Yeah, it's, it's right. It's a story of a great friendship, and she was a wonderful tennis player. And uh, as you say, as, as Buxton sums it up, she says, "Look, the great thing about Gibson was she taught me so much. She was just the greatest possible friend." So anyway, it's a nice story. So um, that's what we've got this week. Uh, at, yeah. Uh, time today and read the paper. Beautiful day. Beautiful day. And so let's uh, go out and enjoy the rest of it. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper. See you around.